CBC, how you doing today? It's so good to see you, so good to get to be with you. I wanna welcome you here in Powell Auditorium for those joining us in Hesperia today and Apple Valley and even online. We're grateful that you're here, grateful that you're making this a part of your weekend plans. And I am excited as we are in this new study, we're in week three of a study into the book of First Peter. If you have a Bible, would you make your way there towards the very back of your Bible? We'll be in chapter one still, just kind of working our way slowly through it. And then also have your notes ready and we'll dive in in just a second. So it's good to be with you. I've just appreciated as we have just kind of begun to scratch the surface of this book, from the very beginning understanding that Peter is writing to a group that he calls elect exiles. And we know the region to which he was writing geographically, but these people weren't necessarily displaced from their earthly homes. He's reminding them of their true citizenship reminding them that Jesus is their living hope, reminding them to where their allegiance is due. And so when I think about the things that we're walking through in our lives in this brand new year, those themes are so significant and important for us as well. And so that's why I think this book is just gonna be such a huge win as we dial in. Today, we're gonna look into some next spaces related to how we ought to live while we have our attention, our focus on what's to come as we continue to remind ourselves of this great hope that we have. And remember we said last week, biblical hope isn't just optimistic thinking. It's a confidence rooted in the character and the promises of God. So as we have that, Peter's gonna give us three directives, three things that we're called to do. In the meantime, we're gonna start though by looking at the role of the Holy Spirit in how we can know that the Bible is truly the word of God and why it's reliable. So I'm excited to dive in with you today. So let's get to it. Number one in your notes, we'll see this right out of the gates, is the role of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit revealed to human authors authors, the gospel found in God's word. The Holy Spirit revealed to human authors, the gospel found in God's word. We're in chapter one of first Peter. Let's pick it up in verse 10 concerning this salvation, which is how we finished last week, a salvation that is now and not yet We're we're receiving the result of our salvation. So concerning that, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, they searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the spirit of Christ in them, the spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you when they spoke of the things that have been now told to you by those who have, been, who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. I love that phrase, that last phrase. Even angels who live and reside in this place where our citizenship is found, they're anticipating, they're curious, they're excited to know, God, what are you up to? And they're, they're kind of getting it kind of play by play as well. So we start this and Peter's reminding his, his audience, his readers then in the first century and us 2000 years later, that we can have a great sense of confidence in the written word of God. That it wasn't just a bunch of human authors writing essays. It's not just a collection of sacred writings. It's truly 
penned by the very Spirit of God. And that's what we wanna look at to begin today and how powerful that is. We even recognize that these human authors didn't have all the blanks filled in. They, they didn't necessarily know how all of this was gonna play out, even though they were writing these things down under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. They were obedient to what they were called to do. And often what we'll use, we'll use kind of a big theological term to talk about the reliability of scripture. If you didn't know, by the way, that's our first HDCU class that'll be offered this afternoon here at the Victorville campus on the doctrine of scripture. How do you have, how do we have these 66 books in our Bible and why are they reliable? And this verse out of 1 Peter, this passage is one of those that reminds us of the validity and the reliability of scripture. So as we see it, one of the phrases that we use, this is in your notes, verbal plenary inspiration. Verbal plenary inspiration. It's a term we use related to how we know the Bible is an authentically God-given, God-breathed book versus just any old book that we could look to. And so in the explanation of this, I'm not just giving you the term, but I wanna tell you what it means. There were all kinds of places, commentaries, theological dictionaries that I could have used to explain this, but I gotta tell you, there's a great website if you don't use it now, it's called gotquestions.com, and this is what I'm gonna read from that is accessible, you can open it yourself, find these same things, but it's just such a, a tangible way to get an understanding of what this phrase means. So look at this while I read. Inspiration, the quality of being God-breathed. So not, when you think inspire, you're breathing in. God-breathed is actually God breathing out into these writers to write what he wants. It refers to the fact that God supernaturally guided the authors of the Bible to write exactly what he wanted to communicate. Everything in scripture is there because that's what God desired to say to humanity. The extent of that inspiration is defined by the dual terms of verbal and plenary. Verbal means that every word of scripture is God-breathed. Every single word, not just the ideas behind the words, is in the Bible because God wanted it there. The word plenary means complete or full. So when used to describe the inspiration of God's word, plenary means that all the parts of the Bible are equally of divine origin and equally authoritative. So that's, just, that's a powerful thing to try to get our head and our hearts around. You'll hear more of that if you attend Pastor Kurt's um, uh, class today. But how do we know that the word of God is the word of God and that it's reliable and authoritative in our lives? Peter, to his other audience, he writes a second letter. In 2 Peter 1, he has something more to say about this idea of the value and the validity of God's word. In verse 20 of chapter one, he says, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things, meaning people didn't just dream this stuff up. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God, and listen to this phrase, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So again, the Holy Spirit's role, Peter says in both letters, is significant related to the revealed word of God that you have in your hands today. And that's just a really cool thing and he really wants his, his readers to understand you can trust this because it literally comes from God. Now note what these prophets that he's referring to back in our First Peter 1, 
is that they were pointing to not just the arrival of Messiah, but his sufferings and pending glories. And I think about that and I think, wow, that's wild, Peter, the intentionality, because remember, that's what we're gonna see all throughout this book, is that he is writing to a group of Christians who are suffering because of their faith, but with the understanding that it's going to be worth it because of the glory that's to come. So he's talking about, like the one you follow, Jesus suffered and was glorified, so you are suffering and there is glory still to come. This last week, we were able to celebrate a national holiday commemorating Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And I found there's this quote that I've used so many times, I just think it's so powerful related to our understanding of suffering and then pending glory. This is what he writes. But we are gravely mistaken to think that Christianity protects us from the pain and agony of mortal existence. Here's the line. Christianity has always insisted that the cross we bear precedes, comes before the crown we wear. The cross we bear always precedes the crown we wear. To be a Christian, one must take up his cross with all of its difficulties and agonizing and tragedy-packed content and carry it until that very cross leaves its marks upon us and redeems us to that more excellent way which comes only through suffering. And what a powerful understanding to know who wrote these words, someone who was definitely not a stranger to suffering, and realize this is part of what God has called us to. Now, in the couple of verses that we read, there are actually two roles that the Holy Spirit played in this passage written to us today. The first we've talked about, that the Spirit of God guided people as they wrote these very words that we have today. But then the second thing, if you notice, isn't just the written word of God, but literally the people that God sends to you to tell you the gospel before you had any concern or even necessarily any knowledge of the Bible, they were telling you the truth of the Bible sent by him, by the spirit of God. So know what Peter wants them to know, what Peter wants us to know is that the spirit of God not only has communicated the gospel, but uses human agents to make sure you hear it. And I just think, man, that's so powerful. What a fully orbed ministry in our lives to not just communicate what the gospel is, but even send people to us so that we could hear it and then ultimately respond. So good. Number one, that's number, now let's look at number two. Live a leaning forward kind of life. Once we understand this validity and the reliability of scripture, now here are these three directives. First one is live a leaning forward kind of life. Verse 13, therefore, in a high desert church, what we understand whenever we read the word therefore, we ask the question, What's it there for? It's a summary phrase. Of all the first 13 verses I've written to you so far, therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. So this is the first of three directives. And, and when I say the word directive, it's another way of saying it's a command. In our English language, like many languages, there, is, there are verbs that just communicate action, but then there are verbs that are directives or commands. They're imperative verbs. You are called to do this. 
And this is the first of three we're gonna see today that as we understand the, the reliability of scripture, then we know that the hope that scripture is telling us about is something that is sure and that we can lean forward, lean into in anticipation. So this is the first of these three. Another way of saying it is that we're called to raise our gaze, to look up and pay attention to this great reality, this great promise that we have in being with God for forever and eternity. Now, when you think about that, last week we talked about, when we talk about the word heaven, there's so many misnomers. There's so many different views that our culture just kind of puts out there that have nothing to do with the revealed word of God. But if we were even to take that very strictly and say, hey, let's, let's look at, let's identify everything the Bible teaches that is true about what an eternity with God as one of his children is gonna be like. And you could write, these things are true about heaven. These things are true about the kingdom of God. These things are true about a resurrection body. You could write all those things. But Peter is saying, just having a knowledge of those things is different than reminding yourself of those things, of, of thinking upon them often, because they create within us a great sense of comfort, a great sense of encouragement, a great sense of motivation to keep going, especially when we're suffering, because he says, it's going to be so worth it. And so he's saying these are things that we need to think on consistently. Now the phrase that he uses, the way our English Bible translated it was to be alert and sober-minded, not to be distracted, not to be under the control of something else. But the original language in the Greek has a phrase that is so unique to the first century and so hard for us to get our head around. It literally says, gird up the loins of your mind. Now, I don't know the last time you girded up your loins, okay? I don't do it often. Uh, and it sounds really like, that's really an odd phrase. It is very odd. But let me tell you about first century. First century is very common to wear long robes, men and women. This is just the way that people dressed. And so imagine when you're walking through daily life with this long robe on, just walking around town, doing what you're doing, totally fine. But if there was a need to take action, if there was a need to run, now all of a sudden the folds of that robe are gonna get caught up in your feet, you're gonna do a face plant. So to gird up the loins would be to take that, the bottom of that robe and like tuck it in your belt. You'd usually have a sash or a belt to tuck it in. It creates some pretty high shorts. You got like runner shorts now. But as you were to pull those in and tuck that in, now your legs are wide open and free, you can go. And Peter's saying, have your mind unencumbered. Don't be under the control of anything else than the Spirit's control and this hope that we are looking forward to. Be diligent. And here's the imperative verb. Set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. That's the imperative. That's what we're called to do to take an active role in having our minds fixated on what is to come. And that's powerful, I want you to see this in your notes. Biblical hope is not only the concept of a confident expectation, but also intended to be something that we rehearse. Not just a confident expectation rooted in the character and the promises of God, but something that we are meant to rehearse, meant to bring to mind consistently. This kind of hope isn't something you just possess, 
but it's something that you remind yourself of constantly because it gives you this great encouragement and you are reminded in the days and ins and outs, it's gonna be worth it. This is where my future, my destiny is because I'm a child of God, I've responded to the gospel, I can surely know that's what I'm looking forward to. I think back to my friend Ruth, um, when I was leading at Trinity Church for about five and a half years down in the Redlands. Ruth was such an incredible encourager to me personally. And Ruth was in her late 80s, and the, of all the things she did to encourage me, probably the thing she did that encouraged me the most she wasn't even trying to do. And it was just her ongoing posture and the way she'd talk about heaven. I love the phrase that she'd use. She said, Todd, I'm just homesick for heaven. What a great, what a great understanding of who she is and who we are. I'm homesick for heaven. This is the way she wrote it to me in a text in 2021 when she was going through as the main caregiver of a husband with dementia. She wrote this to me one day. So many challenges, so thankful my eternal home is closer than ever. Praise God for his word and many passages of hope and promise. And I just think, man, that's so cool that Ruth in her late 80s had this posture of constantly anticipating, God, you have this great eternity for me. But do you know what I would tell Ruth? I'd say, Ruth, it's awesome that as an 88-year-old, you're so dialed in to this expectation and anticipation of heaven. But you know what, Ruth? I wish there were more 28-year-olds who would have that same fixation because we don't wanna think of heaven, we don't wanna think of eternity with our savior as the consolation prize that we gain once we die. Eternity with our savior is the prize. And you don't know the continuum of your life, you don't know if you're gonna live as long, Ruth is still walking the planet. You don't know if you have 88 years or more and the reality is, is that shouldn't matter. There's nothing, the Bible's clear, there's nothing that Jesus is waiting on in terms of some natural or, or worldwide event before he would return. His return is imminent, it could be at any moment. We don't know the day or the hour, but we know it could be now. And so the reality is to go, God, I wanna to continue to fixate on this great reality, this hope, this confidence I have as your son or daughter because the reality is that's where it's at. That's where I wanna be. Now we spent at HEC, we spent most of the month of December, rightly so, celebrating God making good on his promise of sending Messiah the first time at Jesus' birth. And it's a great celebration because it was, he was long awaited, long prophesied Messiah would come. But I gotta tell you, the, the rest of the 11 months of the year should be us celebrating this second promise that he's made and that that Messiah not only died, not only rose again, not only ascended, but he's coming back for us. And this is great news and the Bible says he's not coming back in any way that looks like how he came originally. Hebrews chapter nine, verse 27, just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, 
So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. That's what he came to do, to give his life away as a ransom, but watch. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. He comes back as conquering king, though he came first as suffering servant. And that's such great news that we get to be reunited with him. Number three in our notes today, to live leaning forward means that you don't revert back to former patterns. So he said that this hope is calling us to live this anticipation, leaning forward life, but to live that way means that we don't revert back to former patterns. Verse 14 in 1 Peter 1, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Peter calls them obedient children, not to be diminutive. He's actually just calling them what they are. What did we see last week? You've been given new birth into a living hope. John chapter three, Jesus and Nicodemus, you must be born again. So these are now children of God because they've responded to the gospel invitation. And and notice the descriptor, they're not just his kids, they're called to be obedient kids, right? If you're a parent raising children, you know the difference. Obedient and disobedient. Okay, the descriptor is now that you're in the family of God, this is who you are, you are called to be, you have been directed to be this um, disobedient child because it's a contrast to who you were. Peter's second imperative verb, his second directive is do not conform. Do not conform to these evil desires. That, That phrase, from the original Greek language is only found one other time in the New Testament. And you're probably more familiar with that. It's from Romans 12 too. Listen to it from a paraphrase version and you'll see again this emphasis on being molded into something. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold, but let God remold or transform your minds from within. Don't let the world mold you, put you in this mold so you take its shape. Instead, be remolded, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So these are the two places that this phrase shows up. And, And maybe the best way to understand it is simply this. How many, raise your hand, how many of you remember going to grandma's and having her serve one of these? Okay, take a look, right? Raise your hand if you are the grandma right, who, who made those, that's really cool too. These are great. And this is like a jello mold, right, is what it is. And I included this picture particularly because I wanted you to see, you, you might have come to Thanksgiving or Christmas and see this really cool, like intricate, like how do they do that kind of jello thing on a plate and not knowing how that got there. It's like my grandmother's magic. You know, how'd she do that? Well, I'm revealing grandma's secret, she flipped that container over and she actually took hot, not just even like lukewarm, hot gelatin, and she poured it into the mold, maybe added some fruit like the picture had, but poured this gelatin into the mold. And what happens when molecules are hot and they're moving there and they are grooving and all over the place, but then grandma would take the mold and she'd put it in the fridge. And all of a sudden those hot burning and churning molecules start slowing down. And they take the shape of what they're adhering to. 
There's nothing sinful about a jello mold. But understand the concept. And by the way, when we're talking, quote, about the world or about these evil desires, there's nothing new. This isn't a 2024 problem. This goes literally all the way back to the garden. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the boasting pride of life. This has always been the dilemma that the world is wanting you to live a life defined by those desires rather than new desires shaped by your new father. As obedient children, don't conform. What does the psalmist say in Psalm 1? Don't walk in the way. Don't stand near Don't sit among the scoffers. Don't give them time and opportunity to influence you so you become like them. Instead, his, the man of God, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on it, he meditates day and night. So this is now, and really where this comes from is Peter's saying, let me remind you of who you are. Don't go back to living how you did before you became this obedient son or daughter. Live out this new life that you have through Jesus. When you think about evil desires that we lived according to when we lived in ignorance, for many of you, if you put your faith in Christ, let's say as a high school student or as a young adult, maybe your 30s, your 40s, even later, When you hear evil desires that you conform to before you'd come to faith and put your faith in Jesus, you've got a list. You know exactly what Peter's talking about. Some of them are very unique to you and others are very generic and true of most people. And the reality is, is that what you know now is that when you come to Christ, when you respond in faith to the gospel and become a child of God, that doesn't mean that temptation isn't still there. It doesn't mean that there aren't still desires that are just waiting at the door, waiting for you to open and see what's outside that wanna lure you away. Because you're a child of God, temptation doesn't go away, but when you become a child of God, you have a new power you didn't have before. The indwelling spirit of God that enables you to say no to sin and unrighteousness, no to those desires that dominated your life before. And Paul, or Peter says, because you lived in ignorance, you didn't know any different. That was just the best way you knew how to live. Now the times are different. Some of us though, we've actually grown up in an environment where we've heard the gospel from a very young age and responded to it. You gotta remember when Peter's writing to this audience, nobody grew up in a Christian home. There weren't any. People are coming to Christ. There might have been one generation of people who came to Christ, had children, were beginning to raise them in a home to love him, but that's it. These were people who are all brand new to this faith and this way of following Jesus. But today we have many people who've grown up like myself in this proximate relationship to the gospel, even responded at a young age. And so then when we talk about Don't conform to the evil desires before you became this child of God. It's like the five-year-old who came up at the Wednesday night prayer study. For years I've wandered in sin. And everyone's like, what? But let me tell you something that oftentimes doesn't get shared. And the reality is if you place your faith in Christ at a young age, 
you actually were going through those phases, going through these stages in our lives when the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boasting pride of life looks a lot more attractive than it did when you were seven. And you realize those are very tempting things. But the great news is you have the same spirit of God that that 35-year-old has that doesn't have to live conformed to evil desires that are associated with this world, but instead you can live out this obedient child life that God has called you to. And we'll talk more about that before we're done today. So in this season, when we talk about what are these evil desires, some of you are tempted to life crippling fear. Can I just remind you that you're not to live in conformity with those desires. For those of us who'd be tempted to want to retreat rather than to advance with the great news, the love and the life of Jesus and the lives of unsaved people in our world, just know you're not to live in conformity to those desires. For those who'd want to be tempted to simply indulge in just whatever form of escapism, can I remind you from this passage, you're called not to be conformed to those desires. You are new. Let's live like it. Finally today, number four in your notes, you're called to be set apart for a purpose while you're leaning forward. You're called to be set apart for a purpose while you're leaning forward, while you have this anticipation, this hope of heaven. The last two verses in our passage today, verses 15 and 16, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. No doubt on all three of our campuses today, you probably sang a song in worship to God, recognizing his holiness, part of his attributes and his character. The problem is so many times, like other Bible words, we sing them, we say them, but we don't know exactly what they mean. Let's just ask this question, how many of us when we hear the word holy think of this? And this image comes up and it's a thousand year old you know, religious art and it's like everyone's like, oh, you know, little glimmering things around their heads. And I just wanna help you dismantle a view of holiness that's different than what God's word communicates it to be. I don't think it's that but I actually do think God's word gives us some big help. Part of it is, is understanding where this quotation comes from. Peter is not writing that originally, he's actually quoting the former covenant. In the book of Leviticus, the phrase, not just the word holy, but be holy, is found 41 times. That's more than twice how many times that phrase is found in any other book of the Bible. Leviticus, third book of the Bible, it's usually the one you kind of go, man, if I'm having a rough night sleeping, I'm opening Leviticus. It'll knock me out just like that. Because it is just so like, oh my gosh, I don't care about how many things the priests have to do. I don't care about the bowls. I don't care about, the, you know, you're just over it. And partly is because we don't live under that sacrificial system. It doesn't make a lot of sense to us. But here's the other part. The word Leviticus has within it the word Levi or Levite. It was written specifically to a subgroup within the nation of Israel. 
And these Levites were called to give leadership to worship in God's temple. They were the ones, they were the ones called to be unique, be distinct, be holy within a subset of a greater nation that was also called to be holy. So numerous times in the book of Leviticus, the priests are called out, be who you are. You're a unique people among my distinct people. But then other times the whole nation is called out because you have to understand they're not in the promised land yet, but Moses is telling them when you go to Canaan, you're not to be like the Canaanites. You're not to adopt their ways. You're not to worship their gods. You are to be distinct from them. Deuteronomy chapter four. And as you live that out, the nations around you will say, who has such a great God as Israel? The way he's given them laws and the way he demonstrates loyal love. They were to live out this unique relationship with the creator of the universe where other nations would be drawn. They would want to come and see what God has done. And the way that was gonna happen was because they were gonna be distinct. They were gonna be called out. They were gonna be different than their counterparts. They were called to be holy. So we see this phrase translating through from the very beginning of the Bible into now what we're reading in 1 Peter. Another thing that's powerful, when you look at names of God, especially throughout the Old Testament, they have these great descriptors. Look at the one in your notes. Jehovah Mekadesh, the Lord who sanctifies. Jehovah Mekadesh, the Lord who sanctifies. Notice that word sanctify, by the way, is just another way of saying being made holy. It doesn't look the same. Those two words, holy and sanctify, don't look alike. But to sanctify is to make someone or something holy. And notice the active role. It is God who makes you holy. It is God who is conferring upon you the character he has because you belong to him. You are his. And I think that's such a powerful thing. Paul would say it this way to the believers at Colossae, Colossians 1.21, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Didn't Peter just say that? When you were conformed to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. They're both saying the same thing. That's who you were, verse 22. But now he has reconciled you. God has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death. Watch, to what end? To present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. There it is again. God is doing the operative work. God is the one who is making you distinct making you like him because of what he's done through Jesus at the cross. His shed blood, his broken body creates a way for you to take on the character and the distinctness of God. That's so powerful. And so Peter is saying, as you raise your gaze, as you anticipate this great reality of being with your savior forever, there are some ways to live in the in-between time. And of the three directives, this is this last one, be holy as I am holy. The word Kadesh, by the way, is this Hebrew word for sanctify or sacredness or apartness. 
And when I told you before, I wanna dismantle maybe errant thinking about what the word holiness means. It's, it's errant usually because it, it pulls to one side or the other. So in the best way I know how, let me explain what holiness is with a toothbrush. So imagine I'm up here today and imagine this is my toothbrush and imagine I'm telling you the great things about my toothbrush. Completely sealed, hasn't been opened, been sitting in my medicine cabinet in the same spot with great reverence for 17 years. Haven't opened it once, but man, this thing is pristine, just like the day it came off the assembly line. Now, as you're hearing that, you're going, wow, he really values his toothbrush, but what's happening to the teeth that are rotting out of his head? Right, because you know there's a problem if I set apart my toothbrush, very distinct, kept in wonderful wrapping, but never use it according to its purpose. So you would say, hey, Todd, that's not what a toothbrush is meant to be, it's just set on the shelf and admired. It's actually meant to be used. So I go, oh, okay, so what you're saying is I should take my toothbrush out of the, this is a big deal. I haven't done this in 17 years, so we have a, a moment here right now. But I should take my toothbrush and I should brush my teeth. That's a good thing to do. I a very, ooh, it feels really good. After 17 years, it feels great. And so I'm kind of, you know, using that and using a toothbrush exactly for what it would be for. The fact that you're looking at me while I'm brushing gives you a little bit of confidence. He's done this before. So you're like, I don't think he was really talking about himself. So anyways, I'm using my toothbrush and it's doing a job. If I would have toothpaste right now and have that through the rest of the message, it would be so weird. So no toothpaste, but I'm at least got half of the equation right. I'm using my toothbrush for what it's for. And what I should do you would tell me is to put it back in its container, put it back on the medicine cabinet, and then use it again later tonight. You're like, whoa, Todd, twice a day. It's impressive, oral hygiene. Yeah. But upon brushing my teeth, if I were to go, man, this thing has such great potential for all kinds of uses. I got like this itch right in the middle of my back. Why has no one ever thought of this before? It's the perfect length, it's great. My feet are so tired, I just, oh, oh, it gets the itch right there on the arch I was needing, that's great. And then you go, Todd, don't. And I just go, man, I just think I admit, no, there's no way that's going back in my mouth. No way. On the one extreme, I set it apart and it was pristine, but it was never being used because it has purpose. But on the other hand, when I went to use it, but I used it for purposes it's not designed for, purposes that actually defiled it, now it's no good. That's the best I can do about what holiness is biblically. In your notes, this is the, the two tensions it's holding together at once. God doesn't sanctify you to simply have you be set apart, but to be set apart for his purpose. To be set apart for his purpose. So you actually are living a distinct life on purpose with the purposes of God. That's it, that's what holiness is all about for our human engagement in it. So, and I love this, remember what we said earlier, it said the, the directive was to be holy 
And as a result, you will do holy things. Listen to the way this quote about these verses captures the tension. Holiness is not something we must achieve by our own efforts. Holiness is a state created and given by God. Look at this. The people of God are called to maintain, maintain, maintain the holiness that he has already conferred upon them by his grace and promise and redemption. The emphasis of these verses, I love this, is live differently because I have made you different. Be who you are. Be who you are. That's the call to holiness that God has already conferred it on us and now it's simply ours as his obedient children to live, to be like our dad. So as we wrap up today, what does this the Lord sanctifies you mean related to the people that he has supernaturally strategically placed you among? It's interesting how often so far in this new year, this passage from 2 Corinthians chapter five keeps coming up, but listen to it anew. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, meaning it begins with God making us right with him through Jesus. And this is what that is, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. I love this line, not counting people's sins against them. Man, that is great news because we've got plenty to count. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Here it is. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, his representatives, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So this is what a holy life looks like in relationship to our mission. We are a people who have been reconciled, been made new, entered into the family of God, been born again through Jesus' work at the cross. But it doesn't end there. We're not just now set apart, but we have a purpose to represent, to be his ambassadors to those in our lives who've not yet responded to the gospel. So as we close, it means two big things. It means to live a life that is set apart, to swim against the tide, that this world has because the world definitely loves to celebrate how much it isn't in accord with God's design. There is to be a distinction of how we live that doesn't just look like everybody else. And in your notes, when it relates to those evil desires you're struggling with, in the areas where you seem to have no power to change, rely upon the spirit of God who is in you to produce change and growth. In those times when that desire is strong and we are led towards, tempted towards this old way of life, rely upon the Holy Spirit to be the one who breaks the strongholds that keeps us coming back to who we were rather than who we are now. But the second aspect, don't just sit on the sidelines being different or weird. Back to the whole... um, Uh, thing with the toothbrush in the case. Don't just be out there, just set away from everyone. Instead, in your notes, be Jesus's ambassador. Be his representative to your world with the purpose of being intentional with your Jesus influence in their lives. 
You guys, this is the third week in, the, in a row I'm reminding you, brand new Oikos cards are out in the lobby of all of our um, spaces today. And on the back, they're meant for you to write down the names of the people in your world with especially noting those who haven't placed their faith in Christ yet. And making this part of the rhythm, making this part of the consistent way, this is one of the best ways to begin to be Jesus's ambassador, praying on their behalf that God would bring them to the end of themselves so that they too can become his obedient children. Let's pray. Father God, I wanna say thank you so much for this book. I just thank you even for the undergirding, the foundation of the reliability and validity of your word as we read today being penned by the Holy Spirit through human authors. It gives us such a great confidence that what we have is more than just a sacred text. It's the very word of God. And these three directives, God, of how we're called to live as we're leaning forward, as we set our hope on what is to come. God, would you help us? We know we can't do those things in our own strength. You didn't intend us to. But in the same way that you use the Holy Spirit to write your word, in the same way you use the Holy Spirit to bring the gospel to people who needed to hear it, is the same way, God, you are going to do a work in us as we surrender to the spirit in our lives. God, help us with that this week. And maybe you're here today and you would say, Todd, I can't honestly say that I've been birthed into the family of God. I've never responded to the invitation in the gospel. You could pray right now the prayer I prayed with a wonderful lady after the nine o'clock service today. It goes this way, Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner who needs a savior. I admit that I've lived my way, not yours, and there's a problem in the relationship and it's my fault. I believe though that what Jesus came and did, he did for me, and his sacrifice on the cross, it turned away the punishment I deserve. So see, I'm gonna choose, choose to bring my life to your feet and surrender, and I wanna live the rest of my life following Jesus's example, anticipating his return. You can pray that prayer right now. There's nothing holding you back. There's nothing you need to do first. I pray you wouldn't let another moment go by until you do. Father, we love you this week. Help us to live out these toothbrush, as it were, lives that are holding fast to the distinction you called us to, but holding fast to the purpose of why we're on the planet. We love you and we pray in Jesus' great name, amen.